0: Well, in our study of Matthew, we have been brought right up to the gates of Jerusalem, to Matthew chapter 21, which begins the discussion of what's known as a triumphal entry and uh, really the Passion Week, the final week, the seven days or so of Christ's life uh, heading into the crucifixion and resurrection. And that That is going to take up the entirety of Matthew 21 through 28, the next eight chapters, and for us, maybe the next year of just looking intently and thinking deeply about all that Christ accomplished during that week. But I have been wanting to take some time uh, away from our study of Matthew, and I thought this might be the juncture to do it. This might be the appropriate time for us to step away before we launch into that that uh, journey with Christ and enter into Jerusalem with Christ. I thought it might be good for us to turn our attention to some important questions in this moment of our culture, if you will. And so we're going to take a little break in the next few weeks to think through and to examine what I call the cultural creeds of our time. We all know what a creed is. A creed is a formulation of religious belief, a sort of codification of doctrines or dogmas that we normally associate with a church or maybe a denomination, a a religion. But Whether you realize it or not, the, the culture around you has formulated its own creedal statements. Certain societal doctrines that summarize an accepted value system of this generation and with its winsome little slogans typically formulated in sort of positive and affirming terms, they are promoting a system of belief all around us. In reality, though, these aphorisms, these creedal statements from the culture are really just Fictions, their deceptions masquerading as profound truth, when in fact they're just lies. You see them everywhere, though. All over, you're probably familiar with them. Things like live your truth. You're the boss. You only have one life. Kindness is everything. Questions are more valuable than answers. Trans rights are human rights. Silence is violence. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. No human is illegal. Black lives matters. Love is love. And you could probably add to the list. We could just go on and on. All of these little statements that are posted and uh, and, uh, written and scribbled everywhere... Repeated on the airwaves over and over again, it is a creed. Taken together, they're the summary of beliefs that define the society that we live in. But as one writer, Alicia Childers says, "quote These happy little lies are pithy assertions that sound good, safe, optimistic, and constructive. They look great stitched on a pillow, or digitized in a meme, or turned into a slogan." They're usually stated in a positive form like believe in yourself or you're perfect just as you are. But you see, the best lies are the ones that sound the most beautiful. End quote. She's she's right. These little statements formulated in catchy little phrases are incredibly attractive but also incredibly dangerous. That's because... They are a master class in deception. That is to say that they are not truths in and of themselves, but they're half-truths. In most cases, they lay claim to some sort of ideal that no one would ever want to deny. But then they imply certain assertions that on the surface themselves may seem innocent, but when you begin to dig down deeper and really explore they are utterly deadly at their core and because of all this anyone that wants to speak up and challenge the implications of any of these kinds of slogans runs the risk of people beginning to think that they're actually against those elements of truth that might be mixed in there and besides the slogans themselves For most people, seem somewhat harmless. They are are uplifting, they are encouraging, they are empowering, they're optimistic, they're hopeful. And what kind of ogre would be against anything like that? Well, I'm the ogre. (laughs) At least for the next couple weeks. Because these little popular proverbs that are reverberating all around us, almost unchallenged on a daily basis... They're catechizing a whole generation into a system of beliefs which if not exposed and if not confronted will direct them away from the gospel and from God. It'll redefine their belief system. They'll have a cultural creed but they'll have no real faith when it's all said and done. This is a a system of beliefs that is rooted and and grounded in the the opinions and preferences and predispositions of every person's heart and mind, all built on a kind of self-authority, self-determination that for many people is inspiring and celebrated and exactly what you ought to be going after, sort of believing in yourself. But all of it really is a thin veil for what the Bible describes as a kind of pride that goes before a fall. It's a culture-wide catechism meant to indoctrinate every individual into a worldview of self-exaltation, self-fulfillment, and self-glory, and most of all, into a worldview that doesn't need God. It aims to pump people up with these little quips, you be you, instead of you be who God intends you to be. Or you got this, instead of You can trust God for this. And all along the way, it's all focused on self. It's all directed towards this materialistic, non-God worldview. There have been a number of people over the last five or six years who have tried to address this. A handful of books that have been written that uh, some are more helpful than others. In some cases, probably too general in their approach. Or in other cases, uh, written without a, a biblical clarity And so I thought it might be helpful for us if we took, as I said, a few weeks away from our study of Matthew and just took up a couple of these catchphrases and examined them uh, uh, by by the clear testimony of God's truth to expose what really are the underlying implications, the lies that are embedded in some of these things, and hopefully to warn people who may be naively drawn into Uh, some sort of worldview by these weak attempts at wisdom. Now, at the very foundation, you need to realize that the fundamental flaw in nearly every one of these cultural claims is that their focus is exclusively on how humanity relates to one another and almost never on how humanity relates to God. That's their flaw. The fundamental problem behind all these cultural creeds, the missing element, the unspoken assumption is that whatever problems might need to be addressed, they can be addressed without ever addressing a person's relationship to God. And so while the sayings themselves may come across as uh, as very individually focused on dealing with the individual, the discussions and the solutions many times back away from individual responsibility. In fact, it's ironic that so many of them evolve in their conversations and discussions away from individuals to what end up being essentially institutional, or in some cases even governmental solutions for what these proposed problems are. And really that is at the heart of the whole uh, issue, this has really been at the heart of what's known as progressivism for the last hundred years. Progressivism, if you uh, are a student of history, you know this. It's a movement that sort of emerged in the, uh, in the modern age. It came with the industrial age. It describes that sort of broad-based social or even political Uh, movement that seeks to advance the human society or human conditions through social reform, either through science or through technology or economic development or even social organization. And without getting into too much detail, progressivism evolved slowly with the development of uh, of the industrial and the technological age. Because people were beginning to imagine a whole new world. See, in the pre industrial age, you lived in a world that, for the most part, you had no opportunity to change in any real and significant way. The pre-industrial world was largely one that was ordered by forces that were outside of your control. You were dependent on nature, on geography, on sicknesses uh, and how they might have affected you or your your family. So whether you were farming or fishing, whether you were engaging in commerce or combat, you were subject to an order around you that you could do very little to change. And so the vast majority of people sort of defaulted to that kind of view of the world. They just accepted the established order without much contemplation uh, on the way that things could be different. But with the advent of technologies people began to realize that they could change their environment. First through machines, then through medicines, through, then through all kinds of other raw materials that began to be developed and manipulated. And this bled over time into the realm of technology and then eventually into the world of philosophy and sociology and politics to the point that people began to think that just like they were remaking the, the raw materials that they were digging out of the earth, they could remake the world around them, society around them. They could redirect society as easily as they could reroute rainwater for irrigation. Or as easily as they could send electrons across hundreds of miles of wiring, they could begin to direct the attitudes and the behaviors of society in a more focused and a, and a more constructive way. All it took was getting the right systems in place and we might say getting people to actually believe that change was possible. And so progressivism evolved in a spirit of hope, ushered in by the hope of technology, the age of technology and everything that was changing around us, people began to Believe that society would be remade. The great flaw with progressivism, if you study it, though, was the failure to recognize that the raw material of a person's heart is very different than the raw material of some metal you dig out of the ground. You might take a metal and you might smelt it. You might purify it. You might pull out all the things that could pollute it. You might cast it into some sort of uh, machine that could harness the power of, of a combustion engine, but the human heart is not so inert. It, it is brimming and, and alive with corruption. That is to say, it's not a raw material that simply needs to be mixed together in a new way, recast in a new society. It is fundamentally flawed. It is corrupted and it corrupts everything that it comes in contact with. And so, even when you tinker with social structures, if you do not realize that the materials you're building with are corrupted in themselves, you're going to have unrealistic expectations, unrealistic hopes and dreams, and unrealized goals, Or another way to say that, you're you're setting yourself up for an ever-increasing cycle of disappointment and frustration. Because even when you may successfully establish a new nation, a new government, a new society, a new structure socially, it is going to fail. Because it's built with corrupted materials. Now... The reason I tell you all that about progressivism is because these little cultural catechisms that are constantly bombarding us are really just the latest expression of that kind of, of naive optimism and flawed view of society. The idea that you can address social ills by just simply talking to people about one another without talking to them about God that you can talk to them about whatever moral evils you could uh, sort of uh, summarize without talking to them about the fundamental issue of sin is itself a recipe for disappointment. Because the fact is that for all the weak attempts at wisdom, all of these phrases typically divert attention away from the fundamental issue, which is individual sins. Sins. For all of it, their positivity, they they may sound like they are inspiring hope, and they might even sound like they're making demands on individuals, but the demands are typically either vague and undefined, or relative and constantly changing, or actually in some cases aimed at justifying sin rather than confronting it. And so they all fail at the most fundamental level. As a result of all that, what you have when it's all said and done is not progress. What you have is actually increased judgmentalism, increased frustration, increased anxiety and mistrust within society, increased confusion and pain in people's lives, increased fracturing of the world around us, increased disillusionment, and a society left with hopelessness, believing that they've tried all the solutions and none of them have worked. And so they're left with nothing but just to look out for themselves. It's like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, of one of those iconic buildings, you know, one of the most photographed buildings in all the world. But it's photographed not because of its gorgeous Corinthian columns or its 300 marble stairway, stair stair steps going up to the top. Uh, As wonderful as those things are, we all know why it's photographed because of its fatal flaw. Because from the very beginning, 800 years ago, when it was originally built, it was built on a faulty foundation. Almost from the very beginning, people began to notice that the building was not only sinking, but it was beginning to lean to the point today where it leans 12 feet off of its central axis from from top to bottom. And so no matter how beautiful were the materials that were used to build it, it is a useless relic, unsafe for anyone to really even uh, 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 climb in. It's a testimony to the foolishness of the engineers who designed it. And so, too, many of these popular proverbs, they're built on the faulty foundation of a, a naive view of humanity and life. And the tilting world of the people who try to build their lives on these half-truths are a testimony to the foolishness of the phrases themselves. Well, with all that said, I, I wanted to uh, sort of, after sort of introducing this series, I wanted to take the rest of our time this morning to, to begin by looking first of all at one of perhaps the most innocent sounding, but at the same time one of the most dangerous of all of these cultural creeds, which is simply love is love. I mean what could be more innocent than that? What what could be more wholesome? What could be more noble? than just to affirm love. But the problem is, it is a lie uh, sort of disguised with words of virtue. Makes me think of a description I read one time of a documentary of a herd of elephants making their way through sort of a barren wasteland on a long trek looking for, for water when they were caught up in a sandstorm. And the, uh, the the cameras of the documentary sort of capturing all this, but as the sandstorm begins to subside and the air begins to clear, the camera focuses in on a baby calf, a baby elephant that has been separated from her mother and from the entire herd. She can't find her way back. She sort of hunts around until finally she stumbles upon the footprints of her mother and begins to trace the footprints and follow the pathway but as she does that the camera pans out further and further and further until you realize the tragic truth that she's following the footprints in the wrong direction this is where so many in the culture they find the language of love they imagine that they've p- picked up on the footprints of Of virtue, maybe even the pathway to God. It sounds incredible. It sounds attractive. It sounds so principled. And they never realize they're following the tracks in the wrong direction. It's actually leading them away from God, away from virtue, away from morals, away from hope. It might be the language of God, but it's, it's actually bringing people to destruction. One example would be best-selling author Glennon Doyle who wrote this, We know that love has no buts. If you, if you want to change me, you do not love me, she says. If you feel warm toward me but also believe I'm going to burn in hell, you do not love me, end quote. That, that, that would be sort of a common expression in these days. The kind of expression of love that is just simply some sort of constant affirmation, some sort of pleasant feeling that's never confrontational in any kind of way. It's not our job, people would tell us, to talk about someone's lifestyle or someone's behavior. It is simply to affirm them and to support them. That's what love is. And so uh, we need to just uh, uh, recognize that and we just need to take that posture towards everyone particularly in their definitions of love. If they love someone or if they love something, who are you to say that it's not true? It may not look like your love. It may, not, no, it may not resemble the love you grew up with, but it's love. And so let's just celebrate love. But are all those statements true? Is it true that if you desire to change others, you don't really love them? Is it true that if you I actually want to warn them about the dangers of their behavior, maybe even the dangers of hell, that you do not love them. Because if that's true, Jesus himself was one of the most unloving people who ever walked the face of the earth. And yet it was Jesus who taught us, love even your enemies. Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Jesus' love certainly calls for acts of definitive kindness towards those who may uh, live a life that you don't agree with, but it doesn't forbid you from trying to change them, doesn't even require you to affirm their lifestyle or their violence or their... Immorality or whatever it might be it just it just uh, calls for you to to behave toward them with kindness. You see the problem with cultural creed is it actually undercuts the very thing that it's trying to trying to achieve it actually it actually sows and encourages the very seeds that are going to destroy relationships that are going to separate people that are going to leave people without hope because never addressing the real offenses or the real errors or even the real sins in someone's life means they never have opportunity to see their mistakes or grow through them or change their ways or even be genuinely reconciled to those that they've hurt. And so relationships never reach the depth they ought to reach. They really never know the love the way that they've always longed to be loved. Love with a pure conscience and a clean slate and an open heart. So I guess it begs the question, how then can we know the right approach to love? I mean, how can we know the right way to love people? How can I be sure the best way to love people, especially when they are resisting my love or when they are rejecting the love that I'm trying to owe, uh, show them, I should say, or if they're even calling the love that I show them something different, if they're calling it hate. How do I know how to love people? Well, this morning, I want to give you three simple little principles that Hopefully, it will help you see not only the error of the culture's creedal definition of love, but it will help you understand how love really is supposed to operate so that you can not only show it, but you can uh, clarify it for a world that desperately needs it. Here's the first principle. The first principle is this. Love is defined by God's nature. Love is defined by God's nature. John says this in 1 John 4, verse 7 He makes this declaration, let us love one another for love is from God. He commands us to love because love originates from God. God, in other words, is its source. Or another way to say that is it has no other source. Or you could even reframe it this way. God didn't receive love or learn love or develop love from or through anything else, because love originates from him. He never had to move from a place of being unloving to a place of loving. He simply is its source. That's not like you and me. You and I are born into this world. You and me are born in this world, and we're born with all of our sort of weaknesses and frailties and immaturity We're born with all of our lack of development, and we go through this process of learning love. And hopefully, if we have a good family and we have a good home, we can see good examples of love that can begin to teach us not to be selfish, can begin to teach us how to give. We see, hopefully... Maybe two loving parents uh, who are together, we can learn a picture of what uh, family love and what marital love really ought to be looking like, and we can grow in that kind of healthy environment. Or even if we don't have that, like in my case, I, I grew up in a broken home, but I was able to look at other families and experience other homes and sit down at dinner tables with people and begin to reflect on uh, maybe what was broken in my home and what, uh, what was visible in other homes and start to piece together what love really looks like. And then I could hear lessons and, and uh, sermons and uh, lectures and books and all those other things and I could grow in my understanding of love. But that's not the way God is. God doesn't go out there and Find love from anyone else. Love is from God. It comes from him. He is its source. And because of that, because, uh, or or I say in light of that, John goes on to clarify in the next verse when he says that this is fundamental to his nature. He actually says God is love. He's a definition of love. It is at the core of who he is. It's one of the ways John's actually teaching through this letter. He's actually pointing people to God and to God's character. And so the lessons he gives are often based out of these short little uh, descriptions of God. For example, in chapter 1, he opened up the book saying God is light, which means that simply God is truth. That's the way John uses the word here. God essentially is truth, it's fundamental to his nature. He is pure, unadulterated, unceasing truth. That is to say there's no lie, there's no deception, there's no darkness in him. And based on that, he goes on in the next verse to say, if we say we have fellowship with him but we walk in darkness, we're lying. You, you can't have fellowship with this God and not reflect that kind of truthfulness in your own life. His followers, in other words, will walk in truth and in light. And then when you move to chapter 2, he has another one of these phrases. He says, God is righteous. He is righteous, he says. That is another part of his character and his nature. It's not just that he does righteous things or he does the right things, we would say. He, he, uh, he does them and they're right because he does them. He's the definition of what is right and what is wrong? He's the definition of righteousness. And John then adds to that, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, so again, this is how we live out righteousness because we learn it, we mimic it, is derived, if you will, from him. And then finally in verse In verse 8 of chapter 4, he has this third statement about God's character and his nature. God is love. He's the definition of love. It's fundamental to who he is. He cannot not love because that is at the core of his nature. It's like saying that your nature is to be a living creature. That is your nature. You are living and for you not to be living is for you cease to ex- to cease to exist. Well, God is love. He cannot not love. It is core, fundamental to who he is. He and and just like John says, he didn't learn this. It didn't come from someone else. There wasn't a time when he developed this kind of love. It's always been a part of who he is. Love is from God. It's defined by Him. Or another way to say it is the only definition of love is God's definition of love. It's not defined by any other definition. It's not defined by your definition. It's not defined by your feelings. It's not defined by your experiences. It's not divine, defined by whatever, uh, wherever you are in your particular process of learning how to love. Because guess what? Love doesn't come from you. You are not the source of love. You, just like everyone else, are in that lifelong developmental uh, sort of process of learning how to love, what it is to love, what it is not to love, and all those other things. And you, just like everyone else, are making mistakes. You're doing things that are unloving. Sometimes things are even inconsistent with what you believe. But one thing we know for sure is you are not the source of love. You're not the definition of love. This is why it's so dangerous when people take this statement out of John. Uh, they hear it and they say, you know, God is love. Well, then we can turn that around and say that love is God. Well, that's, that's not true. That's what a lot of the culture wants to do, but you can't do that because everyone has their own definition of love. And that le- then leads to a distorted view, not only of love, but a distorted view of God so many false loves, so many distorted definitions that are out there. All of them arising out of, in some cases, sentimentality, in other cases, conditionality, in some cases, just sort of the lust driven feeling that's natural to your fallen heart. But they're all driven out of this Selfishness masquerading as love self-oriented emotion self-oriented satisfaction self-oriented manipulation so much so that the moment that the world ceases to find you or find someone else personally fulfilling it ceases to love you hear people say it all the time I just can't love that person anymore I just can't love that person This is conditional love. It's it's oriented towards self-satisfaction and when the satisfaction is gone, whatever you thought that you had, you called it love, it disappears. This isn't love according to the scripture. It might be love according to the world, but true genuine love is defined by God and by his nature and by his character and it's a love that's unchanging. By the way, when we say that this is part of God's nature. Uh, it really, I shouldn't say it's a part of God's nature. It is his nature. It's not as if God is, you know, part love and part light. Some people think about it that way, that, that, that there are times when God is more light or more truth than love, and there are times that God is more love than truth, as if the two are in competition with one another. But that's not God's character at all. God is at all times and in all ways truthful. He cannot do anything that isn't true, and He is at all times and always loving. And so all of his attributes are, are, are operative and true of him at all times. So when he speaks, he speaks in truth and he speaks in righteousness and he speaks in love. When he acts, he acts in truth, he acts in righteousness and he acts in love. When he rules, he rules in truth, he rules in righteousness, he rules in love. And even when he judges, he judges in truth, he judges in righteousness and he judges in love. And nothing he ever does violates His nature in any way. He never does anything that's false. He never does anything that is unright. And he never does anything that is unloving. John Stott says it this way. He says it's important to hold these assertions about God together. He who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner who believes, but rather saving him because he's love. This is fundamental to John's entire letter, to understand all of these things about God, to understand his character of truth, to understand his character of righteousness, and to understand his character of love. And also to understand that those who are truly born of God inherit his nature. They have a seed abiding in them and so they love. That's why he says in verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So when you hear someone come along and say, well, love is love. I mean, who's against love? I love this person. You know, I, I, I just didn't know it. I, just, I met them and I was just swept away. I mean, I mean, this love, it's just like so unreal. It's so great. They say all these things without ever mentioning God. Or if they do, I just feel like God gave me a love for this person. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God who's defined for us in his righteousness and his holiness and his truth. Love is defined by God. He is love. It comes only from him. Well, there's a second principle that will help you then I think, see the error a little more clearly and understand genuine love more faithfully. And that's this, love is demanded by God's law. Love is demanded by God's law. We read this in Matthew chapter 22 when a lawyer comes and asks Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answers him by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments, he says, depend the whole law and the prophets. And when he says that, that on these two commandments, the the, the whole law and the prophets are supported, or in some cases we, uh, we read it summarized, he's not trying to wipe away the demands of God's law Or to suggest that adhering to them is not important. Some people have tried to suggest that. They've tried to somehow pit these two things in conflict. That God's demand for love stands against God's demand for the law. And so sometimes you find yourself in this situation where you have the law of God on one hand and the law of love on the other. And you're supposed to always defer to the law of love. But that's not what Jesus is teaching at all. He's actually saying that the law, the law itself is an expression of love. That every one of the laws are an expression of love. He actually quotes from the Old Testament. He's not proposing something brand new to replace the old law. He's actually giving you out of the law itself these commandments of supreme love. And so when moral or ethical questions arise and, and you feel like somehow you are you know, struggling to answer them and you read, uh, you, 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 know, you read God's word and you don't really understand and so you want to just sort of get rid of it and just sort of default to whatever feels good because you think that's loving. You're being deceived. You're either not understanding the law or you're not understanding love because the whole law is built and upheld by love. Jesus, when he says all this, he's not trying to minimize or do away with the law, not at all. He's actually deepening it. See, this this lawyer who came to him was a scribe and a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who was a, a formal scribe, we're told, by, uh, by Mark and by Matthew. And he was wanting to know what are the commandments where I need to pay attention so that I can be careful to keep if you will in some sort of superficial way I can maintain the appearance of keeping these laws but Jesus cuts through all of that and what he wants them to understand is you you can keep whatever law you want but if you're doing it with the wrong motivation you're missing the law because the whole law is built on the principle of love. Every law that's in the Old Testament, no matter how sort of uh, uh, strange it might appear to your ears, no matter how sort of ancient it might sound, every one of them is, is explaining or expounding what love looks like in various situations how it governs your relationship to God and how it governs your relationship to others. See, the, the laws, many of the laws in the Old Testament are what we call case law. That is to say, they're simply providing examples in different cases or in different scenarios of how love, how God's law of love might work itself out amid all the complex scenarios in that ancient world. Now, many of those laws, as we know, were related to things like the temple and to ceremonies, things which became, we're told, obsolete when Jesus fulfilled them through the sacrifice of the cross. But never, ever is there a sense when laws were to be set aside because they are in conflict with love, as if the God of the Old Testament is unloving and the God of the New Testament is loving. That is an erroneous view. Love is never given as an excuse to violate any of God's laws. As a matter of fact, it's given to deepen your obligation to them. To deepen your sense of failure in them. To help you understand just how far you are from being the kind of loving person that God wants you to be when you find God's laws difficult to to fulfill, difficult to keep, maybe even difficult to understand in some cases. It's because you don't understand love and you're not living love. And so love is actually upholding these laws and all the prophets. And you and me and everyone else born in this world, unfortunately, are failing miserably at love. Which really is a great introduction for the third principle that helps us understand the culture's creedal definition of love and its errors versus the true definition of love, and that is this third principle that love is demonstrated by God's sacrifice. This is the greatest demonstration. John said it back in John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So it was made visible, it was made manifest, or as Romans 5 verse 8 says it, God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the display or the demonstration of love. And they're not saying that God's love had never been displayed before, never been demonstrated before. What they're saying is this is the, the supreme demonstration. This is the, the greatest demonstration of love that was ever given The gift of God's son, his unique son, that unspeakable gift when God sent him into the world to not only live among us, but to suffer alongside of us and to die a death that we deserved. This is what John gets to when he says that the son was sent to be a propitiation, that is a fancy word for appeasing it's actually a word that was used in pagan cults to talk about satisfying or placating the anger of a god and their their view of, you know was maybe something like uh, these these divine beings who sometimes just sort of flew off the handle in a rage much like Somebody that you might know who just sort of, sort of boils over and they just have to pour it out. Maybe they have a punching bag or something that they just lay into or if they, if they don't do it physically, they do it verbally or they have something that they have to do to sort of get all of the rage out. That, that's the pagan idea. God, of course, is not like that. He's not, he's not controlled by his anger the way you and I are. But the word fits in the sense that God has wrath in his justice against sin. Because God is just, because God is right, because he hates wrong, because of that sense of justice, there is an appropriate wrath that must be poured out against sin. And that has to happen in order for God to maintain his justice. And so for all that reason, God needed an object to pour out his wrath against. That object, apart from Christ, is you and it's me because of our sin. But through Christ, he becomes the appeasement. He becomes the punching bag. He becomes the propitiation. The object that took all of God's wrath and completely satisfied it. Completely. There is none remaining. No condemnation, no anger, no wrath, no judgment for the person who is in Christ. Now, John takes it even further when he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So what's, what's he saying there? He's saying that, that he didn't send the son to rescue you and to, to take this punishment for you because somehow he looked down and he saw how attractive and how fulfilling, you know, you would be or how desirable or any of those other things. It wasn't because you were loving him. In fact, it's just the opposite. As Romans says, it was while you were still enemies. It was while you were still rebelling. It was while you were still scoffing and turning your face away. It was while you were still mocking God and His law. It was while you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy of God. He gave His Son. This is love. John says. That is love. This is the the demonstration of God's character. A demonstration of His nature. This is love that doesn't need anything outside of itself to be loving. It doesn't need an attractive object. It doesn't need affirmation. It doesn't need any of that stuff. It comes from God. He's the source of it. And through His love, He loved those who are in Christ. He loved us. He gave His only begotten Son that through Him, John says, we might live. Greatest manifestation of love ever. The greatest demonstration of love ever. Jesus demonstrated it in a profound way. This isn't the kind of shallow relative, sort of temporal and eventually fading love, which is the best that you and I have to give. The greatest that we have to give, the most loving person that you could imagine or know cannot love anywhere close to this. They cannot love you the way that God has loved you. They cannot love anyone else. So when they stand up and say, well, love is love, You just affirm my love. I love this person. I want to love that person. I love them today. I'll love someone else tomorrow. I love the way I want to love and I love who I want to love and it's just all love. You and I need to be the one that stand up and says, if it's not from God, it's not love. If it's not from God, it's not love. Because no one loves like him and no one taught him to love. It's He who teaches us. And you'll never know love unless you know God. Because those who are in God love the way that God loves. He pours it out into their hearts so that they can show that same kind of selfless, sacrificial, kind, enduring, patient, redeeming, Truthful love, maybe not as perfectly as him, but following in his footsteps as we seek after him. Father, we're grateful for this. We we are in a world that is so confused by this subject. It shouldn't be you gave us all that we needed in your Son, in your law, in your gospel. It's just simply that the world doesn't want to acknowledge its lack of love. They're following what they think are the footprints of what is beautiful, but following them in the wrong direction. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to be those who can clarify it first and foremost by our actions But also, by our words, by the declaration of what love really is, it is you. And there's no hope of love apart from you. Thank you, O Lord, that you loved us, that you taught us, that you gave us love the way that you did. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.